Well, it's been a, a wonderful time. I, I know this is the graveyard session. <laughs> our, our eyes are all heavy. Um, as you gather, we can't get off the island, so we've got about four or five hours to <laughs> for this meeting. And uh, yeah, it's just been a, it's just been a wonderful time. And uh, please pray f for us. Pray for me and my wife as we transition into a new phase in our lives. We're uncertain as to exactly what the Lord has for us. We have some ideas, but um, it's it's in His hands. All I know is that. The time, the season that we've been in for the last 20 years, um, in fact the last 50 years, has come to an end and uh, we're now looking to whatever the Lord has for us from here on. So please pray that the Lord would direct us and that we may be find, found faithful um, to the end. So let's turn to the book of Hebrews and chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. And remember that we're speaking about how to survive and even thrive yes. in these last days. And the book of Hebrews really is about survival. It's about not turning back. Um, now, I know there may be some who have different views about falling away. If you do, uh, I don't know what you do with the book of Hebrews. Because Hebrews is written for one reason, one purpose, and that is addressing believers who were considering falling away, turning back. Many were, in fact, had already turned, turned back, and others were contemplating giving up. And that's the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews. So it speaks about the greatness of the Lord Jesus. And uh, the reason he expounds the greatness of the Lord Jesus is to say, look what you're giving up. You're going to go back to what Paul calls the weak and beggarly elements of Judaism. And you're going to turn away from this great high priest. Uh, you're going to go, turn away from the perfect sacrifice to sacrifices that can never take away sins. Now, obviously, we're not Jewish. We are Gentile, but the message is still the same. And as we've said, there is this falling away. There are people turning away. And so he's, he's, he's written all of what he's written uh, with this one end. And now he's coming to the end of the, of the letter. And um, let's read uh, chapter 12. And we'll read 11 verses. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 11. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, 
of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Therefore we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seems best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Therefore, uh, nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now he begins verse 1 and he says, therefore, and of course he's connecting that with what he's just said. Uh, one of the problems we have in reading the Bible is the chapter numbers because we read by chapters um, and we should really not do that because the chapter numbers were never in the original text. They were added later on to make it easier for us to find uh, the same, to be on the same page, if you will. Um, and so he's connecting this to chapter 11, which is the chapter on faith. And he says, therefore, we also... In other words, who is the also? The also are the people he's mentioned in chapter 11. And these are what we call the heroes of faith. Now let me give you a quick uh, sum summary of chapter 11 because the problem here is that we have, just as we said this morning, we have uh, sometimes wrong ideas as to what love really is. We have many wrong ideas as to what faith really is. And, and faith is not connected with miracles, because that's the common thinking today, that faith produces miracles. But if you read chapter 11 carefully, you'll see that faith does two things. Faith, first of all, produces obedience. And so, because of faith, Noah built the ark. Because of faith, Abraham left his city and he went into a country and lived in tents and so on. So the first half of the, of the book or the first part of the book deals with obedience. And it's obedience over and over and over and over. Because of their obedience, God then sometimes performed miracles. So Sarah receives strength to produce a child. It was not her faith that produced Isaac. It was God who produced Isaac. All she did was put her confidence in the Lord. And so when we trust the Lord and we obey him, as that hymn that we used to sing, trust and obey, for there's no other way. As we trust him and obey him, he takes care of the rest. So that's the first part of the book. Second part of the book deals with difficulties. And uh, if we have a quick look there, um, in verse um, 35, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might, might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mocking, scourgings, of chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And so these men were, according to modern teachings on faith, losers. Because their faith produced nothing. They didn't get victory over the circumstances that they had to deal with. But that's exactly the point that he's making. So faith, first of all, produces obedience. Faith, secondly, produces endurance. 
And so even though they were fed to lions and they were sawn in two and they dwelt in dens and caves, they endured, seeing beyond the here and now. And that's the commonality between the first part, obedience. The obedience was based on seeing beyond their immediate circumstances and seeing the promises afar off. And that's true of the second group who did not see deliverance and yet looked to a better resurrection. And, and so the commonality between those two groups is looking forward and not looking here and now. So now he is saying, we also. So just like them, we need to get our eyes in the right place. He makes reference to uh, that they would have reason or opportunity to return. If Abraham kept his eyes on his circumstances as he lived in tents. And, and we must remember, Abraham was not a nomad by nature. Abraham came out of a very well-established city. The ruins have been excavated. They had libraries. They had gymnasiums. They had three-story buildings. They had running water in some of the houses. They had, they had a septic system, a, a, a waterborne septic system. Um, a very sophisticated, almost first world environment. And he leaves that establishment and he goes and lives in tents. You see, because in our thinking we say, well, you know, Abraham, you know, the, the, he was a primitive man. It was no problem for him to live in tents. No, it was just as foreign for him to live in tents as it is for us to live in tents. It's not what he was used to. And if he kept his eyes on the tents that he lived in for a for hundred years, in, in round numbers, was it 175 years, 75 years, I think, he would have said, it was much better in Ur or in Haran. Um, you know, I had a real house there. But he stays in a tent. And it's because he had his eyes on the city. And he doesn't build his own city, which he could have done. He had the, the resources to build his own city. He had the resources to conquer himself a city. But he says, no, I want the city God promised. And remember that that city is not 10 years down the road. I'm having difficulty seeing four months down the road. He looks thousands of years into the future. How many years does he look? Well, from Abraham to Christ was 2,000 years. From Christ to now is 2,000 years. That's 4,000 years. If Jesus comes tomorrow, then there's 1,000 years in the millennium. That's 5,000 years. And then we will all see that city that Abraham was looking for. Because remember, the city had foundations. And the New Jerusalem is revealed to us in the book of Revelation as having 12 foundations. That was the promise. So he's looking 5,000 years in the future. And he says, I'm not going to settle for anything here, and I'm not going to go back. I'm looking for the promise of God. And he looks to the Lord Jesus, and Moses looks to the Lord Jesus. Moses looks to the cross. And, and so they have their eyes fixed on the future, and having their eyes fixed on the future, they're able to endure. Now, if you contrast that with the people of Israel, we spoke about them, I think, yesterday. They came out of Egypt. 
Where did they have their eyes? They had their eyes on the ground because they were looking for earthly things. They were looking for leeks and garlics and onion and cucumbers and melons, things that come out of the ground. God was taking them to a land of milk and honey where the rain comes from above, not from below. He's taking them to a heavenly country, but they want an earthly country. And they look and look and all they see is sand. And they say, ah, oh, no, it was better in Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt and rather die there. And of course, God gives them the desire of their heart. He says, if that's what you want. Remember, they, they established a democracy, took an election, a vote. And um, you know how that vote went. 599,998 uh, 599, said, we're going to Egypt. Two said, we want the land. So the majority is always right, brother. <laughs> Two were right. 599,998 were wrong because they had their eyes in this world. And now in the light of that, he's now saying, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I don't want to take too much time on the technical details here, but I know he's drawing the picture of a race. Because he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so the picture that we immediately get is of a, uh, of a stadium in the Roman context. Uh, with people, a crowd, watching them run. The problem with that is that that then suggests that um, my mother, who's gone to be with the Lord, is watching me run the race. And Paul is watching us run. Now, to, uh, to, to give you full disclosure, the commentators and the... Um, the clever people are divided on the issue. Some say they can see us, and some say they can't. I'm on the side of those that they, they can't. Um, so I don't believe that they are witnessing in the sense that they are watching the way that we, that we run. Remember, this idea is taken up in common culture. Because when an unbeliever dies, they say, oh, no, no, you know, Michael Jackson's up there, he's watching us. <laughs> you know, it's just... Now, now, I can give you all the reasons why you know, we, we don't want to get sidetracked on that. So, so in what sense are they witnessing? Well, they, they, are, they, are, they are witnessing to us. They're not witnessing what we're doing. They are witnessing to us of God's faithfulness. So they are telling us. Why are they written in this book? They are written in the book... That, they, that we may learn from them. Remember, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These things happened as an example to us. And so they are witnesses to us that God is faithful and that faith will win in the end. That's right. And so it's not that they are looking to us, but rather we are looking to them. And so what I believe he is saying is look at Abraham. Look how he endured. 
Look at the prophets, how they endured. And now you run the same way as they ran. Look at the difficulties that you're facing and look at the difficulties they faced. Look at your temptations. Look at their temptations. Remember Moses. Moses was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had before him all the pleasures and the power and the riches of Egypt. Obviously, he could not become the Pharaoh or the king, but he was raised as a prince. Moses could have been a playboy. In modern language, he could have had a jet and a yacht and uh, had all the girls that he wanted and uh, lived in a palace, which he did. But he says, no, I'm choosing the reproach of Christ rather than the treasures of Egypt. Now, folk, none of us are set before that choice, as far as I know. None of us have the opportunity to be a prince, to be rich in that sense, to be powerful in that sense. And yet we will so easily sell our birthright for a pot of stew. Moses is not offered a pot of stew. He's offered a virtual kingdom. And he says, I don't want that. I want Christ. And so he's saying, Moses is telling you, don't count the cost. Because Moses didn't count the cost. Look what he gave up. And what did he get in exchange? 80 years of hardship in the desert. Stiff-necked people. 40 years of looking after sheep. I know about looking after sheep. I had to look after sheep as a boy. It's a terrible job. Not as hard as looking after people, but... <laughs> and, and, you, and you wonder why God made him a shepherd. Because the problems of sheep, the rebelliousness, the waywardness, the tendency to go astray of sheep is exactly the same as the people of God. So he spends 40 years looking after sheep. Another 40 years struggling with the people of Israel. Just trying to get them to do what they're supposed to be doing. He didn't have a glamorous life. And he dies not having received the promise, not getting into the promised land. And yet he's recorded as one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. And in Hebrew tradition, as you probably know, he is regarded as the greatest of all men in the Old Testament, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And so Moses is witnessing to us and saying, look what I gave up. Look at what I had to deal with. Can you not do the same? All right. So they are witnessing to us. And so let us then lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And that's really how are we going to survive? We will survive as we lay aside the weight and the sin. Notice two things. Not the weight which is the sin, but the weight and the sin. We understand the sin. I'm not going to preach a sermon on sin. We understand what that is. 
and sin that easily ensnares us. I'm not going to talk about the besetting sin uh, because there's truth in that. There are some of us who have, or all of us, I suppose, have certain weaknesses for certain sins. But sin in general is besetting, ensnaring, entangling. It doesn't take long to develop a bad habit. It doesn't take long to get addicted to pornography or cigarettes or whatever. Shortbread. Shortbread. <laughs> chocolate. Chocolate. Yeah, chocolate. Doesn't take long. And it ensnares us. It entangles us. I prefer the word entangled because it, it, it gets woven into us. A brother John will understand in South Africa we have a, a thorn bush called a hak and stick. It literally means it hooks and it sticks. And if you get near it, it grabs you. And the harder you struggle to get out of it, the more you get entangled by it. Because you can't just pull away from it because it's... And sin is like that. It entraps us and ensnares us. But then there's the weight. What is the weight? The weight are legitimate things that hold us back. And that's the, that's the other problem. So, so sin is always a problem. The bigger problem, because we don't see it as a problem, is the weight. So if you're running a race, and remember this race is not a 100-yard or 100-meter sprint. This is a marathon. It goes on for a long, long time. There's no rules against wearing boots, army boots, and a backpack with bricks in the backpack, like we had to run within the army. There's no rules against that. You can run that way if you like. You're not going to get very far. And folk, there are so many things in our lives that are legitimate. There's no rules against it. It's not a sin, but it's holding you back. It's preventing you from spending time in the word, in prayer. It's occupying your thinking. And generally it's sapping your energy. And you say, well, I, you know, why do I have to give this up? It's quite legitimate. Yeah, it may be legitimate, but it's not helpful. And if it's not helpful, rather set it aside so that you can run that race. And so he says, let us lay aside every weight, every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now, here's where I really want to get to. Uh, sorry, not yet. Let us run with endurance, then, the race. That speaks for itself. It's no good running 90% of the way and then giving up. You've got to make it to the end. And of course, in the context of Hebrews, that's what he's reminding us. And as I said on Friday night, many are giving up. Many are giving up on Christianity. Many are giving up on the Lord. 
they're not necessarily backsliding, but they're sitting by the wayside, and the race is going past them. And so he says, let's endure. Let's endure to the end. And folk, here's the thing, is that, is that in many versions of the gospel that is preached, it is preached as, as an easy thing. Just, you know, accept Jesus and your problems will go away and, you know, life's going to be great and you'll have peace and happiness and your marriage is going to be great and, you know, everything's just going to be wonderful. No, Christianity is hard. Have you heard any evangelist ever preach and say, Christianity is hard, now you need to get saved? No. We want to sell Christianity on its features, advantages, and benefits. No, the truth is it's hard. And we must endure. Paul says endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so endure. See it through. Make it to the end. Don't give up. Don't give up. Because it's so easy when it gets too hard to give up. Remember the witnesses. Israel gave up. Moses did not give up. Abraham did not give up. Sarah did not give up. And I know you say, well, Sarah laughed. That's a whole other story. I'm not going to get into that. The great lesson in that. But they didn't give up. And so let's run with endurance. The old King James says with patience, but it means endurance. The race that is set before us. Now, the race that is set before you is not necessarily the race that's set before me. Each of us have to run our own race. We're not running against each other. We dealt with that this weekend. It's not me trying to beat you. I need to beat myself. I need to win my own race. And it's not me against anyone else. It's not saying, well, you know, I can run faster than Pastor Gary. No, he's got his race to run. I have my, my race to run. And, and some of us, the, the race may be 70 years. And for others, it may be seven years in terms of when they get saved and until they die or until the Lord comes. There are some that we prayed for in the prayer meeting this morning who have to endure physical torture right now. Others who are in prison. Others who are being beaten right now. That's their race. And we can't say, well, I don't care. That's your race. Of course, we stand with our brethren. We suffer with those who suffer. We rejoice with those who rejoice. But we must run our own race. So many times we want to run each other's race. We want to live each other's lives. Parents want to live their kids' lives. Husbands or wives want to live their husbands or wives' lives. No, you need to run your race. Let's run endurance, the race that is set before us. Now here's the point. Looking unto Jesus. Now remember the point in chapter 11. They looked to the reward. They looked to the end, to the goal. And now he's coming back to exactly the same idea and he's saying we need to get our eyes on Jesus. Now, folk, I, I sp spoke on this in, in Sun Valley last Sunday uh, simply because that's where we've come to in our study of the book of Hebrews. But the reason I wanted to bring this up here is because it's pertinent to my last visit here. 
Because when we went back and COVID had, had struck, one of the first message, messages I preached and one of the things God laid on my heart as we got into this whole COVID thing was this word. Get your eyes on Jesus. And folk, unfortunately, in these last three years, Christians have gotten their eyes off Jesus. And they got their eyes on Bill Gates and this thing and that thing and this conspiracy and this threat. And in the process, they drowned. Folk, the... The only way, and, and when we say, well, COVID's over. Well, that's, COVID may be over. And we know it's not over. It's still, still a problem. And, you know, it's, in New Zealand, it's a bigger problem now. But the problem is, there's going to be the next thing. None of us saw COVID coming. I didn't see it when I was here exactly three years ago. I'd set the itinerary. We were going to go from, I can't remember, Brisbane. Then we went to ACT to Canberra. And then we came here. We're going to go to Sydney. We're going to do these things. And then suddenly, everything closed down. And for the next problem, maybe six weeks down the road. Who knows what? The same way as we have no inclination. We had no indication. We had no idea that COVID was going to come and that everything was going to happen the way it happened. So how can we predict what the next problem is going to be? And how will we overcome that? How will we deal with that? And the problem is that if we, if we, if we have our eyes on the problem, we will be overcome by the problem. We need to get our eyes off the world. We need to get our eyes off the problems. We need to get our eyes off the government, whoever the government is. We need to get our eyes on Jesus. Amen. Yes. We need to get our eyes off other Christians. Many Christians are discouraged because of what other Christians have done to them. Get your eyes off that. Get your eyes off pastors who are failing. Get your eyes on Jesus. Because he is the only one who can see you through, and who will never fail. And of course, the illustration is very simple of Peter, who walked on the water, and as long as he was able to, was, had his eyes on Jesus. You know the story. The moment he looked at the waves, he began to sink. And folk Christians have been sinking, because they're looking at the waves and the wind, and they're not looking at Jesus. Remember the witnesses. They had their eyes on Jesus. And you say, it doesn't say so in Hebrews? Well, remember, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. And he rejoiced. So Jesus' witness is that Abraham saw Jesus. Remember that he had a promise that in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Hebrews tells us that seed is of one, not of many. So Abraham's promise was not in the multitude of the stars and as the sand of the sea. But his promise was in one, being Jesus. And that was where his eyes were. That was where his hope was. And I've quoted Moses. 
He esteemed the reproach of Christ. It's not a misprint. He said, well, it's not, it's not in the Old Testament. Well, it wasn't revealed in, but God revealed to the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, that that's what kept Moses going. The reproach of Christ. Now, what is the reproach of Christ? Not his glory. We can say, yeah, you know, the glory of Christ, that, that, that will keep you going. No, the reproach of Christ. What is his reproach? It's in his humiliation and in his crucifixion. When he hung there and they spat at him and they mocked him and they jeered at him. If you're the son of God, come down. Save yourself, save us. That's what Moses saw. And he says, that's better than whatever Egypt has to offer. And so can we get our eyes on Jesus? Forget about what the world has to offer, whether it's good or bad. Because that's the problem, is that the devil will use the carrot and the stick. He will tempt you. And if temptation doesn't work, he'll try and beat you into submission. He'll try and discourage you. And we get discouraged when we start looking around us. Folks, it's easy to look at stuff that I spoke about on, Thursday, on Friday night and say, well, it's all for nothing. Church is falling apart. Our faith is not really working. The promises of a victorious, glorious church is coming to nothing. Let's just give up. No. Let's get our eyes on Jesus. Let's not be discouraged. Let's not be tempted. But let's look unto Jesus. So looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The beginning and the end. Alpha and the Omega. That, isn't that what the Lord has been speaking to us on this weekend? That which he has begun, he will complete. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed unto him. For five years. Until that day. What he has begun, he will complete. Because he's the author and the finisher. You see, he's not like us. I'm pretty sure most of us have projects that we've begun. And we never finished. He doesn't begin things. And give up on them. He finishes what he's begun. And so I can have confidence as I look to him, recognizing that he's going to finish the work that he begun in my life and your life and in the church. And so he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, look at this. Who for the joy that was set before him. So Jesus didn't act any differently to Moses and Abraham and the rest of them in, the, in chapter 11. Because what did they do? They had their eyes on the end, on the goal. And now he's saying Jesus had his eyes on the goal. And so how did Jesus overcome? So looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There's that word endure again. What made him see through the cross? The end goal. The joy set before him. Now what was that joy? 
that he would be at the right hand of the majesty on high? I don't think so. He had that to begin with. To be equal with the Father? No, he had that to begin with. To have a name, and I know there's a whole teaching connected to that, but to have a name that everyone would bow at and worship? No, he had that from the beginning. So what did he get out of the deal? Us. The body of the of Christ. A bride. That's what it was for him. Now, I don't understand that. I, I, I freely admit I don't understand it. I don't. When I look at the church, from a human point of view, I don't think it was worth it. From a human point of view. When I look at myself, I don't think I was worth it. And I'm not saying I'm unworthy of salvation, but what he paid for me, I don't think he got a fair deal. But that's the nature of his love for us. And he says, I want a bride. I want a body. I want brothers and sisters. I want to bring many sons into glory. And he says, I'm prepared to pay the price for that goal. You see, because as he wrestles in the Garden of Gethsemane and as he, as he hangs upon the cross, and, and remember that it's easy to look at Jesus and say, well, you know, the two thieves also died on the cross. So he wasn't suffering anything more than they did. And the same as hundreds of others, thousands of others that were killed on Roman crosses. But remember that the physical suffering was, was only a small portion of the whole thing. The real issue was that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That my sin was laid upon him. And remember that everything within his being is repulsed by sin. You know, we don't fully understand that because we gravitate towards sin. We're drawn by sin. Otherwise, temptation wouldn't be temptation. But he is not tempted in that way. Sin pushes him away. And yet he says, I'll take it. And we can't begin to understand what it cost him, in the words of the song, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. The chorus of that song, oh, help me understand it, help me take it in, what it meant to you, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Fuck, we need a revelation of the price paid for us. But I digress. How does he, how does he endure that? Because he's got his eyes on the goal. Fuck, we need to get our eyes on the goal. Forget about Egypt. Forget about the world. Forget about the hardship of the desert. Remember it says concerning Israel that they became discouraged because of the way. And we become discouraged because of the way, because it gets hard. But let's put our eyes on the goal. Let's endure. And so fixing our eyes upon Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of the faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. 
And when it says he despised the shame, again, we use that word in, uh, normally in the sense of, you know, that uh, you despise somebody, you think them to be worthless. But that's exactly what he does concerning shame. He says the shame's nothing. It's worthless. Don't count. In comparison to the glory and the joy that is set before him. See, we've got to get things in perspective. Paul speaks about the, the temporary suffering that works an eternal weight of glory. And when we don't get our perspective right, it's easy to give up. It's easy to be tempted. If Esau just thought a little bit further than his immediate hunger and thought of what he was doing, maybe he would not have sold his birthright. But he doesn't look further than his stomach. And he sells and despises his birthright. But his brother, he had his eyes on the goal. And he says, I want that birthright. I want God's blessing in my life. Folk, we need to get our eyes off the problems. We need to get our eyes off the world. And, and, and I'm sorry for belaboring this, but, you know, I'm, I, I am frustrated with Christians who spend more time talking about what the government is doing and what the politicians are doing and what the world is doing and what commerce is doing and what's going on here and what's going on there, and they don't speak about Jesus. Their minds and their eyes and their thoughts are filled with this world. And you say, well, brother, we, gotta, you know, we can't be so heavenly minded that we have no earthly use. Well, that's a lie of the devil. That's right. Because Enoch was so heavenly minded that he was of no earthly use. And God took him. That's right. And he's listed here in this chapter. Amen. Let me give you assurance. You and I will never be so heavenly minded that we have no earthly use. Don't worry about that. Yes. Worry about being so earthly minded that we're of no heavenly use. That's, right. That's the only thing that we need to worry about. And so he's got his eyes and so he, he despises the shame. He says it's nothing. And he has sat down. Remember, in the context of Hebrews, sat down at the right hand. In the context of Hebrews, he uses that idea in two different ways. The first is in the context of the priests in the Old Testament who stood daily, he says, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. So there was no chair to sit down in, in the tabernacle. The only thing was the mercy seat, which is where God manifested his presence. But they could never sit down because the work was always had to be done. New sacrifices had to be brought over and over and over and over. Jesus made one sacrifice and he has sat down, signifying that the work is finished. The work is complete. But he also uses it in the context of his position of authority. And so he is now sat, seated in the, in the position of authority, no longer humiliated. No longer in human flesh, but glorified. And so, what are we looking for? 
we're looking for the same thing. We're looking for the work to be finished. In the sense of the work we have to do here, the, the struggles, the striving. You know, one, one of the things that I'm desperately looking forward to is to no longer have to deal with temptation. You ever thought about that? It's never going to be an issue again. The work will be finished. Not because I finished it, because he has completed what he has begun. And so we're looking for the work to be finished. That's where we need to get our eyes. When you look at people who take on long-term projects, I'm sure we've all seen guys who start building a big yacht in his backyard and 30 years later the thing's rusting and rotting in, in the backyard. But if we have our eyes on finishing, it may take 20 years to build that yacht. I don't have the patience for, for that kind of project. But if you really have your goal to have that thing sailing out there in the bay, you'll finish it. But when you lose perspective, you won't. So, so he's finished the work. And then there is being seated at the right hand. And doesn't Jesus promise us in the book of Revelation yes. that if we overcome, even as he has overcome, we will be seated in his throne, even as he is seated in his Father's throne. And so we're looking for that day that it will all be done. The work will be finished. We'll be glorified together with him. We'll be seated in in heaven, in literal, today we see it in heavenly places in a spiritual sense. But then it will be in a literal sense. We'll rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And so he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Folk, can we get our eyes off the problems, off the discouragements, off the temptations? Let's get our eyes on Jesus. The problem is that the problem is that we, 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 we look to Jesus for a bit, for a while, and then we get distracted. And just like Peter, he hears the wind and he hears the waves crash and he has a look. And trouble begins. Let's get our eyes fixed on Jesus. Yes, Not looking away for one moment. And as we look at him, not only will we overcome, but Paul says that we will be transformed into that image from one level of glory to another. Amen.